thinking about all like this different experiences at San Francisco, like just all the different things there. There's one time that stands out in my mind with you in particular, which was down at the studios, your studio in on chestnut. And you okay. were helping me with an artist statement. I remember that exchange very clearly. Okay. Probably That's because- interesting you questioned me a lot and pushed me a lot. And I was just like, I don't want to be pushed in these ways. Don't talk to, don't tell me to do these things I don't want to do. No, oh, that's funny. That's funny. I'm still doing that with people. So. Right. So why don't we just jump into yeah. this and you know, part okay. of the, the process will be everything else. So could you please pronounce your name correctly for me? Amanda Marchand. And you and I know each other because we went to grad school together. But even mm-hmm. still, I don't necessarily know that I know a lot about you per se. So how did you get to being a creative person? One of my big questions I always wonder is like, so how do people become creative people? So, you know, child, uh, parents, uh, teacher, a childhood experience, like how did you even come to wanting to go into the creative fields? It was kind of in my blood, I would say. I was When I was very young, I told my mother I wanted to be a writer in third grade. And I was worried because I wasn't a good speller. And she said, oh, you can just get a secretary. And I was like, oh, okay, troubleshoot that, check. So from an early age, I wanted to be a poet. And I feel like I published a book of fiction, poetry, right after graduate school and have always been a photographer as well. But the early stages of watching my mother who was very creative herself but like to follow patterns and recipes she would smock dresses and she was always selling she did a lot of sewing and she just was a pattern follower and i had her as a role model but i didn't like following patterns so i was always trying to do something else with whatever was like the set thing and and i think that was very big influence but it was very early that I was not only wanted to write, but I was directing little films and creating things out of clay. And I was always working on something, drawing in my bedroom and writing and have diaries that, you know, never ended. And yeah, that was the beginning. And and you're from Canada though, right? I'm Canadian. I'm from Montreal. Yes. And I'm in just North of Montreal right now at my father's house with these Pandy times here. Now I lost touch with you after grad school. Um, we went our separate ways. I believe I moved and left uh, San Francisco, and I, I don't, you know, didn't keep up with what you did. Now, of course, with social media and all these other things, I've been able to sort of reconnect and see what you've been up to. But mm-hmm. oddly enough, our paths crossed about, I think, about five years ago because we were both in the finalists for the center award. Right. I remember seeing you there. Yeah. On the list. Yep. That's great. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't get, didn't win anything. You went on to get some place in that and I didn't, but it's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oddly enough, our paths have crossed again and again, because a couple years ago, you actually entered a lens culture competition. Mm-hmm. And I do portfolio reviews for Lens Culture. 
And so your name came up on the list and I saw your work and I was, I was so torn. I was like, I kind of would like to do a review of your work because it's anonymous. Yeah. But on the other hand, I was like, I don't think I know any better than you. So I have no right to give you any sort of feedback because right. you used to also put me to shame with your writings <laughs> and musings and everything. So I, I don't feel any place to give you constructive feedback at all. Everyone needs it. Everyone needs the push. But I did see you again. So like, so your, our works and our careers have sort of, sort of touched paths over the past couple of years again, all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah, that's, that's so funny. So now I also read that you are currently, wor or you have recently been working with other artists on statements and things like this. Like, Yeah, I have an art advisory. I've been doing it for 20 years because when I graduated from the Art Institute, I started helping my teachers just in the capacity of studio assistant, grant writer, and doing a lot of that for them, polishing things, writing things, and went on to do that for some, you know, I wrote a Magnum grant and I've done, you know, different institutions and a lot of different individual artists just come forward with needing help. So I've been doing it in that capacity, but about a year ago, I just made it official and I have an art advisory and, I really love it because I would love to be a teacher, but I feel like my time is so precious and teaching adjunct doesn't pay very well. I live in New York City. And so just doing my own thing in my own time, I'm a parent too. So it allows me to structure my time efficiently and just really act as a teacher coach. And it's a great experience to work with amazing artists who are almost there and need a little extra you know, more eyes on the work or need help with the writing where that's not their strength. It's not the strength of a lot of, art, of artists. So, you know, many artists are dyslexic or, you know, come to art because they don't have that affinity. So that's where I am able to, to really like make things shine a little bit more. Okay. You've done lots of things. Like I've, I've sort of, as I said, I sort of watched you the past couple of years. You've done, I think, seven or eight residencies you have have i think seven or eight books that you have published both as your art and as sort of writings and you also do assisting of artists for this for their texts and their things like this is this right this is true i've do actually done 12 residencies one one is a, re a repeat one okay but <laughs> i love i re i oh my artist life to residencies so yes Great. that is all okay. true i've, I've, I've done never that. done a residency oh yeah okay. i've never done a residency so i, I want to hear your experiences of a how do you choose them how do you and then the process of application and then the experience of doing them because i know that a lot of them are very different like some expect certain things of you some on the other hand don't expect much of you like as far as you know, teaching classes or workshops or anything like that versus, you know, you know, wanting to see you produce kind of thing. So give me some stories because you're like the first person I've had on the podcast that has a, a large body of residencies. Right. There's so much to say about residencies. I mean, I, the whole talk could be about residencies. There are many different kinds of residencies. For artists that I'm helping who have never done a residency, I say just jump out ahead with that information. And that would be reason for them to maybe give you the residency if it's a prestigious one. They want to help 
people at all stages of their career in most cases, unless you're applying to a residency where it is, you know, top tier artists that you're competing against, like maybe Yaddo or McDowell, they too would be supporting emerging artists, but might generally be really looking for people that are, you know, mid-career and need the supports that they're not going to find in other places. But I've been lucky enough to experience, I went, I did a, fit, a residency in Finland called Artelis Creative Center, which is a pretty good, they are open to international artists. You go, everybody goes for a month. Summer is completely different than winter where it's, you know, daylight all the time and versus darkness. But I think that they really are looking for people proposing crazy, innovative, radical things, and they're not looking so much at your CV. They, they, they want to see interesting projects and they want to help people out who could benefit from the time. So that's a great one, I think. They, it was an amazing one. I'll give you my position on the the whole residency application process that I personally have a difficulty with, and it's my own fault, that I don't really know what kind of work or what kind of project I want to work on tomorrow, much less six months from now. So the idea of like having in my head already a cohesive enough idea and a, a eloquently that I can eloquently express you know, six months, a year in advance that I could then put in writing to say, this is what I want to do. I find that very, very difficult. Some residencies are project-based and they might say, what what project do you propose? But some are, I'm, I need time and space. I'm at this point in my career. And, and you talk about your work, but they're not giving you the residency because of the project you're making. And, you know, they will say, they'll stipulate everything you apply for is always different and you need to give it your 100%. This is where I'm at now. But not every residency relates to this is such an amazing project. We are going to help you because they also realize that you don't know and you may change course and the work will evolve. And that's really what a residency is for, is to explore. So as long as you know what you're feeling through or curious about and that seems like a good point of departure that should not hold you back oh no fear holds me back it's not this this is that holds me back it's should intimidation, have no fear, fear no. of rejection no. intimidation all these things these are the things that hold me back i mean i can write it but it doesn't sound good like i find that like when artists oftentimes don't come here when they're always exceptions but oftentimes when artists write about their works they're very attached to it, very personal about it. And that's really not oftentimes what these people want to hear. They want to hear some sort of different thing. I'm not, and I'm not sure what that different thing is. Mm -hmm. Now you have experience doing this do. and doing I, it successfully. I feel, right. I mean, if you've been a juror and a teacher, I've been listening to your podcasts and they're really great. It's so many nuggets, little gold nuggets that people are offering and very, you know, great for the artist's life to just add to that arsenal. But I would say there are two things that are really important to put in any grant application or residency application. And they're the hardest questions to answer. But if you can answer those, you stand a good chance. And they're the questions, why me and why now? The first question, you know, because to me, it's like a series of step-by-step -step things for applying for grants or funding or any other kind of things. 
first, how do you even decide which one to apply for? Because there are the sheer volume of residencies and granting opportunities and all these things is really daunting and overwhelming these days. So first, how do you even choose the right one? But then once you get past that, like what are some tools to be able to write more eloquently about whatever you're proposing? To know where to apply, I would just ask your network. You've been an artist for a long time. You would ask someone like me, where do you think I should apply? And I would probably tell you what would be your easiest you know, bet and maybe some others that you'd strive for. Uh, maybe they'd be ones I've done and you'd probably ask your network. So you might get different, you know, picks from different people and choose among that. Or you could do research online and the top 20 or 50 would come up and you just start from there. You see what aligns, but it is something you do research on. And even if it's just asking your network. The second question, how do you get the residency? I think it really comes down to the two questions. Why me and why now? And if you can answer those two questions in an application, why this work? Why why would why me and not this other person whose work is also amazing? Why and it might be, I've never done a residency. Never done a residency. And they might think, um, well let's give this person a chance. Their work is strong. They've never done a residency. These other five people have done many residencies. Um, or it might be, I, I had one where the person who accepted me it was at Mass MoCA. They actually said, I gave this to you because you said that you had not done residency in 10 years. You had had children and you had been working. And I thought, wow, how great would it be for you to get this residency now? You had done two big ones before and then nothing for 10 years. And we gave it to you partly because of, you know, your application was strong, but this really moved me. So that is answers the question, why me? And for you, you'd have to figure out what is your specific situation that would be a proclivity for you, why you? And then the other question is why now? What's going on in the world right now? What's going on with the work you're making right now? What's going on with you right now that right now is really critical? You need to, they, you need this. Maybe you just lost a parent and you're grieving and this, you need to work through the work. Maybe you, it's, you know, there's a pandemic <laughs> and this work is like very timely. Maybe, maybe again, maybe it's, you've just never done one and you have something amazing to put out in the world and you think that this could change your life. And I, I do think that residencies are radically life-changing they became a part of my, pra I realized after children that I wasn't working very well as an artist. I, I wasn't getting things out into the world. And it wasn't until I did that residency after 10 years that I started back in action the way it used to be. It just was the connector. And so now I do, I try to do two, two residencies a year or one residency a year or three if possible. But even if they're short, a week, it's great. You know, a month, amazing. But Okay, how do I hire your consultancy to assist me in, in writing this? What, what are your fees? How does this work? It's very simple, and it's just on an hourly basis. And I work on many long-term projects. You know, it might be you want to get a show in a, in a gallery, and we're working towards that, or you have, you know, you want to get your first residency. Or you might just have an artist statement that might take a few hours and then we're done. It's it's really what the needs are. And, you know, I, I also 
work for some people in terms of accountability. Some people are not very good at holding themselves to things and we set goals and we meet them every week. Other people, it's really the writing. Other people want help with their portfolio. I've done a lot of books. And so one part I really love is like great work that's that wants to be a book. We can workshop that. I would love to hear more about your books as well. Mm -hmm. We'll get to that, I'm sure. Okay. <laughs> I hope. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm fascinated by the whole grant writing residency stuff. So tell me a story about um, a residency that was in some way impactful, like, and maybe a, a couple different stories of like different expectations that were given on you, that things that either worked really, really well, or maybe even some scenarios that didn't work out. None have not worked out. Every residency I've done you has been so lucky. Has been no, every single residency has been the biggest gift of my artistic career. And they're all different. And what is so great about them, each one is you meet people that are just astounding individuals charting this life that is so, you know, I'm so in awe of the, the people that I meet at each residency. And they're complicated individuals sometimes, but you know, they just, they've just chosen this one, whether it's music or choreography or painting or photography, dance, they're really remarkable in their, you know, stick to itness of this passion and different ways they go about it. And I learn a lot from, from these people. It's kind of like graduate school is this crucible for information and networking and conversation. And a residency is just a little bit more of that. It's some summer camp for adults. That's something I've come to realize, which is like in academia, there's this like pressure cooker of like critiques and constantly producing and all this kind of, and we all hate it and love it at the same time. And then when we're pushed out into the real world, we have absolutely nobody supporting us in the same way. So like no critiques, no teachers pushing us, no nothing. And we're left to our own. And many of us, you know, wander away from it. And, and that's one thing they tell you, don't lose your networks, don't lose your, your groups, create them when you leave school. So that's been essential for me too. I have two groups, two critique groups in New York, and we meet once a month, each of them. And they, I, I don't know if I could, don't know if I could do it without them. You know, just the conversation, just having work that gets put out there, just having the feedback and the support when you're up and when you're down, because you're inevitably going to be a down at the bottom of that wheel, feeling like you're terrible at what you do and what's the point. And then they buoy you up and you just realize this is just part of the pattern, you know? So that's essential. But in terms of like stories about great residencies, the one I did in Finland really, because I'm a photographer and work with the light. I'm a poet. I work poetically with, my imagery. And so I was really drawn to the fact that there would be the blue somnambulistic light of dusk and dawn and that there would be not very much daylight. And I wanted to see how the world was transformed by that. And so visually as a photographer, the landscape was just, it was like there was a photographic scrim because it was January, there was snow, everything was white. It was hazed out. There was the sun hugged the horizon, but never showed through. It just kind of subtly appear sometimes we had like three days of sunlight and I was with 10 other artists from around the world Mexico New Zealand England California and everybody had a different project there was somebody painting with fire doing smoke paintings there was my one roommate 
Staz, who's great, was a performance artist and Buto dancer. And she wore white and white face the whole time she was being snow, performing the act of being snow for that month. And she was sewing in her room and we did a, an activity with her where she said, come, I invite you, I'm gonna teach you. We're gonna roll over for one hour, I'm gonna do a roll. So slowing down time, and we all just so slowly rolled over. It was fascinating. You know, these different people that I would never meet otherwise, and the connections are so strong because you are living with them or, you know, interacting and talking about the things you care about most, that you're crazy, quirky, or, you know, very deep, deep investigations, and you connect on, on you know, on that level. It's, it's pretty profound. You've spoken about the networks and how important the network is. I, I, you know, I made a lot of mistakes in my career, but one of them is, is that I, I am really bad with nurturing and growing networks. I, like I'm great with meeting people. Like I can go out and, you know, I'm very social in that way, but it's the building and the nurturing and the growing of a network that I feel like is oftentimes the most difficult for artists because we get very selfish and introverted and whatever else and we don't do a good job at that i think it's simply having an intention i need this i want this this is missing from my life and you create it you invite people to a forum or something that meets virtually or in real space and you just set out to do it with people that you admire and then you begin sharing and that's it's very simple you can start with three people five people and you just sort of commit. Yeah, that scares the hell out of me even saying that. So yes, okay. Why? Yeah, Why? You. Oh, I've grown into a whole series of uh, fear of failure, fear of rejection kind of issues over the course of my career. And it's all, I'm sure, personal, possibly even back to my parents, but I'm not going to blame them. Mm. So Well, I've, you know. I have also experienced much failure and rejection, you know, probably as much as you. And in a way, it's freeing. It's freeing. If you're rejected, you're free to do what you want. That's what I found. You turn it around. You don't let it stop you because then you are stopping you, not the rejection. You stop you. It's true. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm sitting here acting like I have some pity party, but I'm not. I'm not. I mean, I, I don't take rejection as a as a thing to, to a barrier. I see, you know, sooner or later, uh, you get over it, but sometimes it takes longer. Sometimes it takes shorter. Sometimes it's easier. Sometimes it's more psychologically difficult, but we all hit that wall and have those barriers at different times and in different ways in our careers. Yeah. I guess I've been doing it for so long. I just think bring it on because the more rejection I experience, the closer I am to getting that one thing. So just bring them on. I'm applying, bring it on another rejection. I'm just closer. I just see it that way. And sometimes there's a sting. Sometimes there's there's not a sting now. And sometimes I just feel, okay, you don't get it. Like, next one. It's really, it should not absorb any of your ego. Because I think the best art is not, is not about ego. So take the ego out of it. At least that's what I've learned. Oh, I totally get it. I'm just, yep. uh, you know, it's, it's just, you know, it's just never easy, basically. No, it's not easy. It's not easy. Well, because I, like I live in a household where my wife is an accountant, so like she just goes to her job, she does her job. If she does her job well, they continue to have her work. It's, it's as easy as that. Whereas the creative industries are very different. Like you, 
you try and you fail, you try and you get rejection. You do, and one, Oh yeah. One thing I want to ask you about one of the, my pet peeves about the residency granting funding sort of process is that generally when you apply for these things, you, you go through all this effort and the time to put together an app or choose the thing you want to apply for. Then you put the, the application, you put it in and you receive one of two things generally. I mean, I know there are exceptions to this, but generally you receive either yes and you don't know why they said yes, or you receive no, and they don't tell you what you did wrong, so you can't do it better next time. Right, I know, that's true. I'm thinking of the Canada Council, they do actually provide information if you, if I'm you know, Canadian, so it's something a lot of Canadians apply to, and they will, if you write in and say, can you please let me know where I went wrong, they will, they will speak with you about it. So sometimes you can get that information, but I feel like if you have a critique group, you will know what the weaknesses are. You'll be troubleshooting that with peers that are like-minded. And a jury is not any different than your peer group, really. They're just people like us, they're yourself included, who are on these juries. Before you apply for these things, you should have your critique group letting you know what the weaknesses are in your body of work or what the strengths are so that you understand it and so that you're troubleshooting that with them. And then when you apply, you'll kind of know you'll know why it didn't get it. Or maybe you, you should have a feeling for whether it's in the running or not. And I think you get that mirrored back to you by the people in your networks, because the people in your networks are basically the jurors on these panels. They're real people. They're, they're, they're gauging the work. They understand if you're a photographer, like we are, photography and where it is in the world and all of that, you know, or if you're mixed media. They should. I mean, these should be the people that you have as your as your peer groups. You need them so badly. I do. You are correct because I've been traveling and changing locations. It's very difficult to maintain a peer group, but the idea of doing it virtually these days is sort of coming to a point where it's almost necessary. Yes, it's not ideal, but it's 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 better than nothing. It's true. It's interesting. I mean, I hadn't really come across the idea of, of, of actively creating a network. Uh, I've, uh, for some reason, I've always sort of passively just sort of expected that a network would somehow create itself. Like, so taking that initiative and actually trying to build it seems like a, a way to go forward for sure. Yeah, definitely. So let's move on to some books. I, fascinated with your books. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm still fascinated with it because I remember at San Francisco when you did your first photogram exhibition with the flowers that you put on the walls in the Diego Rivera gallery when I was the guy coordinating the gallery and you put up these these pieces with flowers that were, had been photogrammed that you put them up with the intention and you hadn't fixed the photographic paper with the intention that it would then fade over time so that you would never, you would literally never be able to see the same exhibition twice. You have such a good memory. That's exactly that project. It was called Still Life. And I've always been interested in what is a photograph. And I've always kind of just, the medium is so malleable and, and plastic and it, it can be, it can be a projection. It can be a piece of paper. It can be a sculpture. And it's kind of, not definable. And so that question, what is a photograph had started back then when I was playing around sewing on prints and thinking about the slippery surface of the print and how seduced we get by the image and 
where is the depth and meaning with photography? And so I had I had done exactly as you said. I had made I think there were fifty or sixty photograms of plastic flowers. I was thinking a lot about still lives, about nature, and then the plastic flower, which is forever, but that they would be plastic flowers that faded. So I put them up on the gallery wall, a few every day. And if you happen to walk by it on your way into the copy room, you, you might see it perfectly. And then five minutes later, it might be very dark. And then at the end of the week, they all kind of had a trace shimmering where you could see where the, there remained something that had been on the paper, but you, it was hard to make out. And so I, they all disappeared or they were destroyed, except for two that were framed. So that that it's interesting though, because I'm kind of doing that work again now, 20 years later, 18 years later, with this lumen printing, which is lumen printing is simply it's the most basic form of photography. You do it with children, you take black and white photo paper and you put it in the sunlight with a fern on it, you know, and you make a print and it, it turns all these amazing colors depending on what brand or type or finish of paper you have, purples and blues and browns and oranges and so I've just been playing with that alphabet of color, thinking again about transience in life because fascinated by our mortal planet and our mortal selves. And so the medium of, of the photograph, how does it translate this subject matter? And so this lumen work I've been doing is, is very, you know, kind of replaying the same, kind of replay your, your playbook in many different ways in, in life as an artist. So kind of back there again. So you've produced, I think it was nine books that I've seen. So like, how did you even get to, did you publish, self-publish? Did you approach a publisher? How did you even get like the first one? Because I know sort of once you get one, it's sort of easier to get two, three, four, five, but it's that first one. Like how did that process come about? Well, first I would say that I, I really create work from a book like I get an idea for work th through a book it, it's presented to me as here is a book with this conceit or this format and and then the gallery wall sort of happens second for me I've realized this more recently but that was pretty much the way it always was after graduate school and so the I did this series of work when I was at the Headland Center for the Arts right after graduate school, school called 415514 the two area codes California and Quebec the two places I was traveling between and living. And they were very minimal works that were paired with the conceit of the opposing pages of the book form. So they were diptychs. And then Edition One Studios printed a edition of 100, you could call it a, a book or portfolio. They did this for 20 artists that were represented by different people and were showing their work at Cavallo Point which was kind of a, um, it's over the Golden Gate Bridge. It's a, it's a beautiful hotel where they were trying to have this curatorial art system be part of the, the guests would come in and there'd be changing work on the walls. And so these books were a part of that new way of exhibiting. So that was, I guess you could call that my first book, but I think I just didn't really, think so much about the publisher. I think I just started off thinking, I need to make a body of work to understand what it is as a book. And then things follow through with that. So I did this 
work called Night Garden, where I photographed over one summer, late at night after my children were in bed, the, su the summer Canadian garden, which is only two months long. And parallel to that was the story of my mother who had cancer. She had terminal cancer and it ended up being her last summer, although we didn't know it at the time. So it was for me a way of connecting to my mother because she was a passionate, avid gardener, just lived for her flowers and plants. And through that, I didn't know it would be a book, but in order to understand it when I was finished with the work, I, you know, didn't make that work for a year, but then I just sat down and I laid it out as a book and then was happy with it. And Linda Connor, who you remember from the San Francisco Art Institute, who has, who <laughs> was a teacher, mentor, has been, you know, continued to be a good friend of mine. I called her and said, Linda, can I send you this book dummy? I want to get your feedback. And she said, no worry. I'm going to be in New York next week. And I'm meeting with my friend, Sangyeon, who's another Art Institute graduate. And Sangyeon Ju happened to be the publisher of Dats Press, who I've now done two books with. So that meeting, fortuitously, she could have not liked the work, but it, it began a real relationship that has been so dear to my heart and so creative and mutually, I think, beneficial. It's, I was very lucky. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's how it began. No, that exactly answered my question. I mean, you know, to a certain extent, no matter how good your work is or how hard your work is, a lot of times the success stories in the arts come down to a chance meeting with the right person at the right time in the right place. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was committed to doing books. I had done, I did another book because the sky in an edition of 50 with a plexiglass cover. And it's kind of a sculptural work where you can feature that there's an elastic band and the pages come out. But the idea was I really wanted to craft this in a certain way that was very sculptural. And so I made the book myself. I now know I, I'm, I do a book with every project. That's just part of my art form. I make a book and it's very different from the work on the walls because it is a sculptural space for the work to inhabit. Okay. Now I know you've worked with, was it Dites Press? Is that what the name? Dites? Dats. Dat. It means anchor Dat. in Korean. They're in, based in South okay. Korea. And you've worked with them on, I think, three projects? Two projects. Three. Two books that they've published and one book that they printed for me. How is it working? So, like, do you have to put money forward to, to make a print running? Is the publisher doing this? Like, I have no experience with publishing houses in the past 25 years. So, you know, give me some insight on the sort of the, the, the process, literal sort of okay. tangible, technical process of like step-by-step -step of how a book gets produced these days. Sure. If you are lucky enough to meet Sangyeon and she likes your work, they would offer <laughs> to publish your work. They do. They did 10 last year. So I know she's meeting people at portfolio reviews and, you know, maybe some things are coming across her desk through, you know, reference or, but she does travel around and, and, and does do the portfolio reviews. And I think she does get some of her artists that way. But once that happens, they publish the book and they pay for it themselves. They don't ask the artist to put up any money at the moment. They, they, you know, I've been saying you should ask your artists for a little bit of money because they don't make very much money off their books. They produce such gorgeous, gorgeous copies and they travel the book fairs and they bring their staff and they do promotion and 
I mean, what they do is is almost closer to what a gallery does. They have a museum also in South Korea where they will feature the work. They'll put a show of the work up. It's very, it's an amazing place. I did a residency there this past summer when my book was being published, my last book. But you would have the option of doing offset press or digital printing and the costs of those are different and the amount, the edition number would be different because offset, you'd probably do an edition of 300 versus 100. Although I think there's a lot, you know, the photo book club is very small, unique, uh, you know, group of book lovers. And even an edition of 100 is very special. And, and you'll find collectors that love collecting edi small editions. And then you don't usually work on site with them. But I was lucky enough this past summer to be there with them at the press and go through all of those stages, which was fascinating. I worked with a designer on my book. We met every day. We, you know, the book kind of evolved into something different. Um, he had had a typology background. So just even conversations about what does this kind of type suggest? You know, it's, is it old fashioned? Does it, does it represent what you're trying to do? Talking about concept and how to relate the concept of time it was actually the work I had made five years prior in Finland on that residency that was published as a book. So it took five years, but then it had time to, you know, percolate and simmer for a long time. And then finally that, that last um, month together, working with the designer and the publisher and Ju Young, who was my, the managing everything. It was a really phenomenal experience like choosing papers. It was a work about winter. So the conversations that we had about which whites are going to reflect the idea of snow, you know, which which consistency of paper, what what binding are you putting on? Such lovely esoteric things that most publishers do not have the capacity to, you know, lend themselves over to. But I was able to work like it was really a dream project. It was. It was one of the highlights of my career. It was amazing. Oh, I'm a snob for a beautifully designed book. I love the the textural feel of it, the the way it sort of just hangs either in your hand or on the on the table or whatever. Like, mm -hmm. I love a, a beautifully designed. I have lots of graphic design friends, so mm -hmm. that's so I've picked that up over the years for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The end result of books, like I know about. I've been to, well, know about. I've been to a lot of book fairs and I've you know participated in that book culture a little bit here and there over the years. I always feel like all of the people that are in it are are working on a super slim profit margin. Like I feel like nobody's really sort of making a lot of money, nobody's making a lot of fame or fortune or anything out of it, but they're doing like passion projects. These passion are, I mean, projects. they're some of the most there's some of the most exquisitely designed, you know, beautiful imagery, gorgeous layout, fabulous materials, but they end up really being passion projects. Cause I mean, more or less, I always, I always feel like if you see somebody at a, like a small book fair where they've got some great book that they've made in the end, they're more or less just going to cover their costs. And if they've done that, they've done well. Yes. You're a hundred percent, right? It, they are passion projects. They are, covering their costs in most cases. There might be a little profit margin. I think one way, you know, I think they try to figure out ways to make more income and one might be the special edition. Most 
presses will, you know, in, in some cases or all cases now realize it will benefit them to do a special edition box or book with a collector's print that is priced at a much higher tier that would then get sold to a library or a museum that would be much more desirable that might, you know, feature some special gifts of the artist and would be, you know, it, it, it's just a, it's a collectible. And those can pay the way for the book itself, which is usually maybe losing money or making not very much. <laughs> it's yeah you don't go into right. it for the money it's true but i mean it always i mean this sounds really superficial but like it looks great on the cv to have a book published and oftentimes those books end up in the hands of the people who will then end up assisting your career in some way so like even though maybe it that one project does not uh, give you any great, let's say, financial rewards, it oftentimes ends up giving you some career advancement that you could, simply could not have gotten any other way. Absolutely. 100%. I mean, first of all, there's the gratification you will feel on having something, even if you do a small edition of 25, and you have this hand-bound thing, and it's a placeholder for like this body of work you did that you can pull off a bookshelf and show somebody. It's very accessible, it's very intimate. You know, rather than getting out huge boxes of prints, you can carry it around in your bag. And if you have a chance meeting with someone, you can show it to them on a plane. Or, you know, if you're in Chelsea, walking the streets and you meet a curator, they ask you about your work. You can, well, I have my little book in my pocket or in my purse. It's it's very wonderful object to to have and a useful tool, as you said. And I think that artists, especially photographers, where if you're going from painting to a book, something might be lost in the translation from the medium of paint to the medium of the photograph. But with many photographers, you're not really losing much because you print on paper. So it's a very good way to show what you do traditionally photographers work in series like that is sort of the the iconic sort of background of photography like you work in a series you make a body of work all these big words about large things other people uh, who work in other mediums so sculptors painters printmakers they often don't have to work in series so is that still true these days with social media and websites and all this like do we do we as photographers I ask this partly because I do these lens culture reviews as well. Like, do we need to be working in a series anymore? Is that still a, a, a important thing for photographers? It's not really a question I ask. I don't think it's necessary. I think you need to do whatever you need to do for your work. And it depends what your work is. You know, maybe one image says it all and then you move on to the next thing. Maybe you do that over 10 years and you call that a series it i think it's a little bit of semantics oh it's absolutely semantics it's not just a little bit it's totally <laughs> semantic yeah i think if you're worrying or thinking about series you should be thinking about why a series and what is this work i'm making and what am i trying to communicate and how does the series help translate this passion or curiosity or investigation rather than are we, is everyone working in series and do we need to work in a series? Don't get me wrong. The reason why I ask is because 
through lens culture, you can submit two different ways, either single images or series of mm. images. And so like every day I'm looking at either what people define as a series of images that may or may not fit that bill. And then a, ser a group of images that they call their single shots, basically a single image that they believe is simply strong by itself, which oftentimes end up actually looking more like a series than what people call series. Yeah. So it's, it's that sort of balance of like, is it really necessary to define a set of works as a series or a body of work these days? Right. I think you work on a project and you, you, the bigger questions are like, when is it finished? How, am I finished this project? You know, some photographers go out in the world and they shoot and maybe that's a series, but maybe they don't define it as a series, but that is their, their work has a certain look. I mean, I know some photographers that aren't really working on series, but they have a very constant look they're the way they photograph maybe they're using flash or something and they're photographing the streets and so you wouldn't define that as a series but they're just working I, I use i use the project because i conceptually i'll get different ideas and things that suddenly i want to see or try and play with the medium of photography in a new way so it's useful for me to say well this was a series and now here's something else uh, you got to remember the podcast is called the wise fool so like <laughs> some things i know and some things i'm stupid about so this is one of my stupid things it's fine <laughs> because i know your background and because of our personal experiences with this i want to know your input on the contemporary change in the what i see as the necessary balance between strong images and strong text so whether that's an artist statement evocative titles, captions, whatever you put to it. I feel like there's been a change in the last 20 years since last we spoke about the, how important that relationship has become. I feel like it's become more important than it was way back when. Interesting. So are you asking, you're asking about how to use text to promote your work? Or are you asking... <sighs> What am I asking? Okay, what I'm asking is, is I feel like these days I hear more, see more, and read more about the elevated importance of a quality artist statement or a quality of text or a quality of uh, titles or captions or whatever, any sort of relationship of text to work. I feel like is more important now than it was 20, 30 years ago? Well, it might be. I'm not, I'm trying to think back what, you know, when I was helping people write their statements, one teacher wrote a big grant for him and he got it. And it was pretty important for the text to be good. I think his work was amazing. He was already very well known and established, but I think that you where when it when the images are great that's great but then they'll go to the words and they want to see what your intention is where you're going to go with the project it just needs to be clear and communicate and you want it to serve the images so you don't want that to be hard to read or not well written so in that way i think it's it's an it's a second uh, level and and i think with some residencies they will say you know the work is really important secondary 
the words, but those still matter when it comes to the final judgment. And so, in some cases, I've even said, I've, I've, see, I've seen them say, really work on your statements. We, we do take them into account and they read them first and then they look at the work. It, you kind of need to know what you're applying for and what their stipulations are again. But yes, text is important. And that's if you, I've heard you in some other podcasts say you're not, it's not your strength. You're not a writer, but that's not your file. And you know that. So fantastic. Check somebody else. Help me with this statement immediately. This is something we do. Many people do. Why not get a little second, you know, a second pair of eyes, a little help, or actually, you know, somebody who's good at that. You're good at the art side. Somebody who's good at the writing. Get them to help you. And then you use that one crafted thing to apply to many things. And when you've changed the work, then you get that person again. I don't know. That's, it just seems like an easy fix. Okay. Well, within that, so like, let's say I'm going to approach, let's say I'm going to come to you and I want your help to hire you to, uh, to assist me in polishing and completing my thing, but I still need to do the foundation work. I still need to write sort of a starting point on it. What are some elements that you see considering you are a professional at this of a strong start for an artist statement? What are some things that should be included in them when we write our rough drafts even. Okay, no art speak. Don't use high conceptual terms. The reviewers are tired. They're tired. They're people. They've got 100 or 200 things they're trying to get through on the weekend along with their jobs. I'm trying to make my sentences shorter now. I'm always like, let me get the message across. Let me help you. A little humor, uh, you know, sometimes you might want to say hello when you start in a, you know, hope you have a cup of coffee. Like, I, you're just talking to a person. So you want to address them. You don't want to waste time on that. But you want to speak from the heart and you want to speak your truth. You want to speak with the clearest voice what it is you're trying to do or what you're doing. And many artists are terrible at this. I've watched them be um, incredibly awe-inspiring artists, but how can you not be able to say what you're trying to do? So my the way I work with people is I do exactly what you're doing right now with me, and I ask them questions. And while they talk happily about all the things they love and how they were inspired and what got them into art and what materials they use and what they want to do, they're telling me with, in a passionate voice, I just write everything down verbatim for pages and pages and pages. And then it's all there. And then it's in their words. I, you, do, you know, I, it's very important for it to be in your words and with your language and come from you authentically. And so all I'm doing is taking exactly what you don't know how to do and just using this device of being an in, you know, a interpreter maybe. And then I write it out in a format and then we, you know, is it a 200 word statement? Is it a thousand words? You know, how do you weave it into a residency application that's very site specific or a large grant that's competitive? Then you need to bring other elements into it. But all of that material comes from that first kind of crafting session, I guess. Okay. Cause you know, I remember being, now I believe it wasn't the San Francisco Art Institute, but it was the Corcoran that actually tried to teach me like, oh, I remember one professor actually clearly saying, start your artist statement with a Latin phrase. <laughs> no, that's not right. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't. 
I mean, anymore, if, if, any now. If your work had to do with the language of Latin and something related, use the Latin phrase, of course, if it makes sense. Well, this is the thing. So like when I was, I, from what I remember, and don't get me wrong, because maybe I remember my education wrong. Yeah. Like maybe I just took out of it the wrong things, basically. <laughs> but I remember being told basically to be your own cheerleader and to be rather pompous and arrogant and use Latin phrases and spout philosophy and no. be really intellectual, high intellectual and all this kind of crap. And I find that that, that is absolutely the worst thing you can do these days, the, that it's the basically the complete opposite of that, that want, everybody wants to be emotionally engaged and somehow sort of touched or moved by the statement in some way. Who told you to be pompous and use art speak? I'm going to go, I'm going to blame the Corcoran for that just because we went to San Francisco. So I'm not going to blame San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think if you read, if you're a reviewer and a teacher, you're reading things, you know, what touches you, you know, when something, it, it tells you about the work and tells you why the person is making the work. And it may connect you to what's going on in the world in a larger way, why it's you know valuable or important or topical or critical. And that's what an artist statement should do. It should, in a, in, a, in a way that is very true to you, just in the way that each of your podcasts, you interview someone about graphic novels or about their you know professional art career. They're different people. They're, the podcasts are totally different and unique to them. Each one, the conversation is its own thing. And each artist statement should reflect to you. Each artist statement will be completely different, but you need to be direct and concise and communicate effectively. And you need to really say, what is this work you're doing? But it might be somebody who's reading it that is not a photographer. So you don't want to drop heavy photography terms, whatever those might be, I'm not sure, but you know, you really want to break it down for a general audience so they can, understand what you're doing because we get involved in our processes over time and we think everything is very should be obvious to anyone where most people if i'm doing lumen prints it is the most basic thing you could do in photography if i bring it out in the sunlight it will change color but people won't really understand that unless it's explained what's happening and why you're using that material you need to be able to do that in your in your statements. And I think, yes, they I think they are important today because maybe they won't be used, but if they are used, it should be good. Uh, I've found that through teaching and doing the reviews and all this kind of stuff, like that uh, uh, basically a good artist statement will elevate the work. A bad artist statement can make what was good work not as good. Exactly. So like, it's really hard because I mean, there's a lot, there's an equal amount of pressure. Like, so you have to make amazing work and make an amazing statement in order to just keep them at the level. Cause like you could, your work could suddenly be perceived by a, a reader or a judge or a juror or whatever as simply not as strong because your text is not as strong. Completely. That, that's why, I mean, there, you, there are books that help you with this, or you know, you might know some of these tricks that you, if you journal, I 
sometimes if I'm thinking in my head about work and it, it, I'm sort of telling myself a story about it, I realize that it's in this first person narrative that I won't be able to tap into later. So I grab a pen and I just, it might be in the middle of the night even, jot it down. And the way you're thinking about it is exactly right. It's very true. It's not like you're not trying to create a container around it. It's just coming through you the way that if you were writing a poem or something, it would come through you. And so it's good in those moments to have a notebook, to be journaling, to write about the work at different points. And then you go back when you have to write your artist statement and you look and a lot of it will be there. If you don't have somebody helping you, you can do that for yourself. You just interview yourself. That sounds funny, but okay. (laughs) You brought up earlier this thing about like sort of why you make work. And that's one of my biggest ones. I'm constantly saying this to people, basically the questioning of why. So it's not, to me, it's partly why am I making the work? Why do I feel like this method of expression, so whatever technique or process I've chosen to do is the most appropriate to explain my idea or a concept or intention, but also partly I feel like, so please correct me on this, that an artist statement to a certain extent should also be a bit of a, why should the viewer be interested? So to me, it's a bit more of a, a dialogue instead of just a, this is what I do. I'm sort of pushing this on you, but it should also be a little bit of uh, an, an invitation for them about sort of uh, trying to entice them to want to understand more about the work. Exactly. It might be something about your technique or what started the work for you. Why did you create this work that wouldn't be obvious in the work that they would understand, you know, oh, my mother's garden. Well, it's a garden, it's flowers, so it's night. But the story, the backstory of, of there being an emotional component gives it a different meaning, a different read. So you need to realize what are those, the instigators that are deeper, richer, maybe an anecdote from childhood that brings the work to light in a different way. Anything that, that's where it can be very personal, you know, maybe something humorous or, you know, I'm not thinking of anything specific. So maybe these examples are very good, but I think what you need to do is where does the work come from? If I'm asking you about the work, you would tell me, oh, it, it was, it, this is why I'm doing this work. And that's what is not obvious in the work itself. That, that is interesting to everyone. Yeah. I feel like we could, I could just keep asking you like more and more finite questions about this probably forever. So we'll just move on. Okay. <laughs> Cause like, basically I'm trying to ask you to write my, my, my portfolio thing for me. But on a side note, I was recently informed to my dismay, because I did not know this, that there's a difference between, an, a, like, there are three things that an artist should have generally, which is their CV, their statement, and a separate artist bio. That those are the three sort of standard things that we all should have. Now, I didn't know about the artist bio. So <laughs> help me out. W- what should an artist bio be? Your bio is just your CV and words. It's really a story of your career. So rather than listing everything, it would say, what are the most salient things? What what has been most dynamic or critical in your career? And you would feature those things in a story. 
So maybe if your school played a big role, you might talk about the school and what happened around then, or maybe if it was a long time ago, you wouldn't even mention that. That might get mentioned at the end or not at all. You're kind of selecting the story you want to tell about yourself. And, and it's usually whatever is most recent. If you've just had a show or something, that would be, you know, what led up to that. And, and, the, and you know, your top hits. I believe you have done more in your career than I even know about because I keep in mind, I'm only looking at your social media and your website. Mm. So I'm sure there's more. Well, I have an upcoming show, but it's because of the timely nature of that and what's going on in this pandemic era. It's hard to say when that will happen. I have new work for that, that I'm really excited about a new body of work that I've been working on for three years. It's I've mentioned this Lumen work, so I'm excited about that, but, I'm not sure when the world is, won't be the same world, but not sure when that will be. So navigating that has been, um, you know, question mark. Oh, I know. I, I had my first solo exhibition lined up that was supposed to open three days after they put the country into quarantine. Oh, oh no. So I was like, great. And, and now what, what is the situation? Uh, it's just holding, waiting. Yeah, but it uh, will happen. We're still, we're still. I have no idea. Mm. We're, we're, I mean, at this point, we're still in quarantine. So, mm -hmm. but along with that, I feel like that that does bring up the question of the changing world, that the horizon that we can't see over, and what will be the future of, you know, art book fairs, art fairs, galleries, um, museums. All of this is changing, and what is the artist's role to? in the future times. There seems to be a lot of, obviously, Zoom and video, but I've started seeing a lot of people doing studio tours on video to present and talking about, you know, acknowledging my gallery show, which is postponed, but through studio visit or portfolio showing online with a selected group of people, you see a lot of this happening. So it's curious to see how, I mean, I'm curious to see how this will play into the future for all of us. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm trying uh, to be optimistic in believing of course in the the power of the creativity that you know I have this belief that sort of on the other end of this um even at the least companies will need creative people to come up with creative ways to reinvent their corporations or whatever so even the commercial arts and that kind of stuff should probably do very well and there's going to be a lot of creativity and new avenues of um, not only expression but like how to start up doing things like art fairs again and all this kind of stuff they're going to have to come up with creative ways to do these kinds of things so like things are going to change the question is just how far does it go mm -hmm. and how dramatic is it yeah a big question. I think art fairs, I was reading something, the fact that a gallery would ship all their work and in transit, some of it might sell before they get to the fair and then they have to ship it back. And the gallery owners are worn out from all this, the extra work that goes into like packing, shipping, creating work to fairs, hanging and then dismantling, that maybe that will be a thing of a past or, much, or will be much more, you know, much fewer. It's, it really kind of was they were popping up everywhere. Then maybe now it'll start to disappear. I found out a fascinating story about why 
Art Basel is such a thing? Mm. Like, because I never understood, like, you know, there are art fairs all over, but like, why has Basel in Switzerland in particular been such a big thing? There's a thing in Switzerland. So if you purchase a piece of art in Switzerland and do not hang it on your wall, but put it in storage, you have to pay no taxes on it. Oh, wow. And that's not true of anywhere else in the world? Not to the best of my knowledge, no. So purchasing like mm-hmm. you know, a $10 million piece in Switzerland and leaving it in storage in Switzerland, you and then just basically holding on to it for I don't know how long, and then reselling it, you never have to pay taxes on it. Mm. That's fascinating. Hm. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. Yes, it is. I don't know if it's true, uh. but it's, it's an interesting <laughs> story. Okay. <laughs> One topic that has come up in the past with other people, which you would be more unique to talk about with, is the the nature of sort of um, having children and how that potentially sort of affected yeah. your your career. Like, did it, did it get in the way? Did it help? Did it you know that whole scenario? Because some yeah. women have have addressed, especially here in Europe, that mm-hmm. it's frowned upon. And like one person even said that they were told not to have children if they wanted to have a successful career. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I think that that's well, that's a great question, and it's it does pertain a little bit more to women than men. You do you have kids? Not yet. No. Nope. But I look um, forward to being a stay-at-home dad. Right. It's just a really a question of time and how you you divvy up the parenting. And in my case, we decided that I would stay at home. And I really wanted to be present parent. And so I would be a studio artist and a parent at the same time when we had very little finances in New York in a tiny space with a child who was when he was young had quite bad asthma. So I look back on those days as just being incredibly challenging. Just being a parent is it, it, if you're not sleeping for years and you know, you're, you're just trying to get through that to a point where you can breathe again. So, I, that's where, when we spoke earlier about failure, that's when I, I made two bodies of work. I worked, you know, in a pretty steady way. I had a studio. I was there several times a week. I was working on that work, but it never got out in the world. It's buried. It's in boxes. And I never was able to, I kind of work in two stages of production, very right brain, tactile, and in the process. And there's I don't really know where I'm going. It's a series of questions and experimentation. And then post-producing is, is a different part of my brain. And it's much, much more methodical, usually working with people helping me post-produce in a lab or as a book. And I wasn't able to get to that second stage with the early work for maybe five years or six years. My gallery was great and kept me on. And she was also a parent of two daughters. So she was very supportive and that was fantastic. I was, I just, I had my hands full. So it, so in a way I interpreted that as I was a failing, failing at my craft, I was failing as an artist. And the emotional torment that goes with that was difficult, but it really forced me to step back and say, well, where do I, what do I want to, do with my life? Do I want to remain an artist? How committed am I to this thing that I thought I would do forever? And I, what I actually did was I took a year and I said to myself, I was working and I said, 
no more working on small projects or working on projects that aren't going to happen. You have to, the, the next thing you do, you have, you have to feel that it's big enough and you have to give yourself some accountability. And it took me a year to get to this point. So I wouldn't let myself make work unless it was, I was like, I can work for a few hours, but if I'm working for a few weeks or a few months, it just had to be, have enough gravitas or something. And then I read avidly every single book I could get about the craft of being an artist, about the business of being an artist, about how to shape, because it is, you're an entrepreneur, really. It's a small business in a, in a sense. It's not very glamorous to think of it that way, but really, what was I not doing? Where was I missing out? And I just researched the topic and found it really fascinating to, you know, Seven Days in the Art World is a great book and talks about these seven, you know, art at Cal Arts and a magazine and one of the art fairs. And it's kind of looks at the economy of art and how Sotheby's and art auction at Sotheby's and how different that is from Cal Arts. What, art, what does art mean at these different levels? So there's, there's just so much, there's so much great material out there. And it, some books, The Artist's Life, I think that's a little tiny book. Making Your Life as an Artist, that's what it is. It is it, just, is it, you should read that one if you haven't already. It's a great tool. And with respectful professionalism, tells you what you may be doing wrong or right about money and valuing yourself. So I kind of did this year-long session in all of this work that interested me anyway, along with the grant writing I've been doing for many people. And at the end of that year, I woke up one morning with the idea of doing Night Garden. I had been, you know, I'd known about my mother's cancer and I knew I needed to address it in some way as an artist. That's how I process the world. And I knew my mother wouldn't want to be photographed. And so I woke up thinking, I'll do this project this summer, but what if I don't do it? So I sent out, I decided to make it a kind of virtual open studio where I essentially sent out an email to two or 300 people. It was 300 in the end, inviting them to join in while I photographed the garden and talked a little bit about what was happening in my world. And because of that, when I actually had to make the work after being, you know, bone tired with children at the end of a long day in the sun, summer, swimming and projects and two little ones at nine at night, I would go out for three hours and photograph because I had promised everybody I would show them the images and I would share some of the writing about it. And that it taught me, you know, that I probably learned from those books and learned about myself, like what wasn't happening. And, and that really did kind of change my practice. Just having the failure, if I hadn't had all that failure, it just gave me the freedom also to make work I really wanted to make. Not, I think before when it wasn't working out, I was, well, I was still working work that was, I'm making work that was true to myself, but I was not, I didn't have the accountability. So, yes, children was hard on my career, but it was great on my life. So, highly recommend it. When it comes to like applying for things, because you mentioned sort of like you know failure and this kind of stuff, so I'm like I'm wondering like how do you did you ever sit down and like do like a breakdown of the percentage of like the amount of applications that you put in, whether it's grants or residencies or whatever, and the percentage of successes and percentage of failures, kinds of thing. I think every year is different. Each project is different. And one project you may feel at the time is really important and good, but you then you realize it was really a precursor to something that was much better. So 
it's hard to evaluate that way. But I, I mean, I might be wrong in saying if I apply to 20 things, I might get one. It's probably a good odds, you know, maybe two. Yeah, it's good to hear because like a lot of people think that, you know, for every five, they should get one or for every 10, they should get one. Right. So like, I mean, having a realistic expectations of like how much rejection and how many no's they're going to get for whatever, so that they're not uh, putting too high expectations on their own yeah. practice is, is a good way to go. Each juror is different. I mean, some people, sometimes you get complete rejections and then one person you get an award and you're like, well, why was it rejected from everything else? It's just the work speaks to different people in different way and you never know who your jurors are. So you shouldn't really, that's where you should not let yourself feel badly when you don't get the things you're applying for. It's really a numbers game. I find that I'm either one of two things and I never know which I'm either very far ahead of the curve. Mm -hmm. And so nobody really likes the work I'm producing at the exact moment, or I'm very far behind the curve because generally people find my work about five years after I'm done. Mm -hmm. with it. So like I can be working on it and working on it, working on it. I could put it out into the world. Nobody will give a shit about it. But then five years after it's been put into the world, suddenly people appreciate it once I've already moved on to the next thing. Right. Well, I guess that's better than dead, but. <laughs> it's true. Tricky. Thank you for that positive note, but that's fine. Well, many artists' careers are, yeah. are you know, the art is discovered after. So. Well, okay. Yeah. That's an interesting question that I, I'm, you know, I'm a optimistic, realist, optimistic, pessimist kind of thing. I fear slash wonder how, let's say we, let's say I never reach any amount of fame or you in this case, never reach any amount of like great fame. How is your body of work going to be treated after you're dead. Like, I wonder about that. I'm always so scared that whoever I entrust my whatever estate or my work to, that like they're going to then fuck up my reputation, mm -hmm. <laughs> like posthumously, posthumously, posthumously. Yeah. Uh, like, I'm, I'm very afraid of that. It's legacy planning. I think that it's probably not too early for us to start in, at least in this next decade to start thinking about where, what museums or how will our work be remembered and how can it be, who, you know, where will it go? I think that that's a project in and of itself though, you know? I was going to say, wait, is this whole topic horribly arrogant <laughs> of me to even think of? Like the fact that I believe that my work is worthy of some thing after I'm dead, is that horribly arrogant? Um, I think you have to have that conviction or why are you making the work? some of us are going to be wrong and some are going to be right, but it's not for us to decide. So you just have to have the conviction that it matters. At least you start, it's not outward affirmation of the work that you're looking for. It's inward. And from then, you know, the, the you know, you make smart choices about trying to place it professionally and in collections or as books and do what you can with it, but it's not entirely in your control, but I think you can make wise choices about it. And then legacy planning is something that artists have to think about. And it will affect the work after you're gone <laughs> to be cheery. I'd never even heard the term legacy planning, so I need to Google mm -hmm. that. Okay. Any last little tidbits, anything you want to flesh out or touch on that maybe we didn't or finish up that we touched on that you didn't get to say enough about? It's been a great conversation. I, 
I guess I have a new book out that isn't going to the art fairs. It's called Nothing Will Ever Be the Same Again. It's printed and produced by Dats Press, my publisher in South Korea, and they're amazing. They have a virtual show up right now because things have been closed. I think it'll be up for several months. They're a great place to check out. They're always doing amazing things with artists, projects, and books. And shout out to my gallery, Treywick Contemporary in California. Which actually I was going to quickly ask, wait, but let me go back one step. We're not done yet. How how did you get a gallery? So Uh, what was the process of finding or or building that relationship? Well, maybe being a bit naive about how that all worked when I was younger, I got very lucky. I was at the Headland Center for the Arts as a, as a artist and they would do these open houses every few months. And you talk to a million people going through and she came through and liked the work and then you know, said, why don't you come on by? So I went to her gallery and, and we chatted and I'm actually, it was, it's a funny story. (laughs) It shows you really how naive I was. I went to the gallery without any work thinking she just wanted to chat. And she said, well, did you bring your work? Is it in the car? And I said, the work, I just came to see the gallery, but I'm going to bring the work the next time we meet, I wanted to check everything. I played it off. I mean, <laughs> or she knew completely that I was, you know, very unaware. And then the next time I brought the portfolio and the, it was, you know, it was a good, it was the next, you know, two decades of my life, this relationship with her. So, Well, and this is something like I, I want to say for the podcast so that people understand this little connection that have gone through what I'm hearing about your career, which is that when you were at the San Francisco Art Institute, your graduate program, you, by the way, what did you major in? You leveraged the relationships that you made with some of the teachers and, and some of the staff and even there at the San Francisco Art Institute to assist you to then you got the, you got awarded the Headlands uh, grant residency because I'm not saying it was because of the relationships, but it helped to have those strong relationships with the, the people at the university or sorry, the Institute. And then that ended up leading on to things like having a gallery and having your first edition printed and things like this. So like, this is something that a lot of students who might be listening to this podcast that they don't they don't realize that like those relationships not just with your peers but with your uh advisors with your mentors with your teachers are some of the things that can really assist you in sort of getting some connections and building that network to grow your career Mm -hmm. definitely i mean that that award that i got was i had to apply for it with a written statement and I had to go in and interview for it so there were and it was up against a lot of people so there was that but I would ne- you know I am where I am today because of the relationships I have in art and because I cherish these relationships and these people and I am in awe of the work they do and I am humbled continuously by the great work that I am surrounded by and my peer group is one that just you know the residencies and the people that are my artist friends and network and near and far from, you know, old and new. I just, I do feel that they're, they're a constant gift and they just create such light in my life. And I learn from these people and I don't know, I want to help them. This is partly why I do this art advisory work. It's very 
rewarding to help somebody pull their work together, just that next level that will help them on their way. You know, the teachers I've had, Linda Connor, Ann Chamberlain, and, and you know, Sangyun Ju, who's my publisher, they're amazing, incredible individuals that I'm lucky to, to know and be around. And I, I feel like if you approach things as a student that way, you can see that your teachers are are kind of doing the impossible. They're they're making a career in art, which is not easy, and and teaching, which doesn't pay that well, and and making it in the world that that like that was why I went to graduate school. It wasn't so much because I thought I need to learn how to make art. I wanted to see how artists lived. I wondered how do real artists what do they do? What's the what is the recipe for an artist's life? And so going to graduate school, I was in and among them. And it was so formative for me to just, this is how they cobble it together in these ways. This is what it is. And it was like, I found my tribe. It was so, it was amazing. The San Francisco Art Institute, which is struggling or maybe going under, it's, I guess you said that there's hope or maybe. We will see that that was an amazing, that's an amazing school. It's just a tragedy what, what's happening there. But my experience there was to the connections that happen through art are, the, for me, the deepest connections that happen in the world. And, I mean, other than family. And it's a privilege to be able to be an artist today. That's that's how I feel. And your students should, <laughs> I don't know about the word should, but you, you also don't know who will be that person that starts a magazine later and says, hey, can I interview you for this, you know, this piece? I've got a new magazine that then becomes like the next big thing or that starts a gallery or that is a reviewer on a panel or that, you know, invites you to their class and, you know, you meet a student that buys your work or something. Like all these things are interconnected. It's this amazing web of richness and potential. So that's the way I see it. It's fabulous. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. It's great to see you again. Congratulations you on your podcast. It's, it's wonderful.